By the dawn of the 20th century, the quote-unquote Wild West was, for the most part, a fading memory. Billy the Kid, Wild Billy Hickok, and John Wesley Harden were all six feet under. The buffalo were gone, the indigenous on reservation, and the once vast prairie now overrun by civilization. The frontier, for all intents and purposes, had finally been tamed. But I guess no one bothered to tell Harry Tracy. Considered by some to be the last of Butch Cassidy's wild bunch, Tracy blasted his way out of prison in the summer of 1902. And what followed was one of the most desperate manhunts in all of U.S. history. Over the course of the next two months, this Old West throwback would lead over a thousand lawmen, including the National Guard, on a deadly game of chase that would see at least seven men gunned down. According to the papers of his time, in all the criminal lore of the country, there is no record equal to that of Harry Tracy for cold-blooded nerve, desperation, and the thirst for crime. Jesse James, compared with Tracy, is a Sunday school teacher. But who was the real Harry Tracy? Where'd he come from? What started him on a life of crime? And was he really the last of the wild bunch? My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Harry Tracy's real name wasn't Tracy. It was Severns. And Harry Severns was born sometime around the year 1875 near Pittsville, Wisconsin. His father, Orlando, was a forester by trade and his granddaddy the local justice of the peace. By all accounts, just a nice, upstanding family. Sadly, not all was as it appeared. In 1889, Orlando Severns was elected as treasurer for a newly formed school board and put in charge of collecting finances for construction. And once Orlando obtained said money, he took off, abandoning his wife and kids in the process. Now, Harry would have been around 13 or 14 at this time, and I don't know that he was ever again in contact with his father. Matter of fact, Orlando would pass away just a few years later in Kansas, having already remarried. And to be perfectly honest with you, I just don't have a whole hell of a lot more information on the rest of Harry's early life. There are rumors galore, though. Boy, howdy are there. I know this applies to a lot of the historical figures we cover here on the Wild West Extravaganza, but man, oh man, is there a lot of misinformation out there on old Harry Tracy, much of which originated later when Harry was on the lam, and with very little in the way of actual evidence, like the stories of him raping and murdering his own Sunday school teacher, or that he killed a neighbor there in Wisconsin with an axe. Now, the general narrative is that Tracy spent some time working in the stockyards of Chicago and the gold diggings of Colorado before heading up to Montana and trying his hand at working cattle, an occupation that soon devolved to him just rustling livestock. They say Harry killed a sheriff's deputy up there in the big sky country and drifted back south to Colorado where he continued to kill. And of course, somewhere along the way, he joined up with Butch Cassidy. Hell, there's even a movie about it. 1982's Harry Tracy, The Last of the Wild Bunch, starring Bruce Dern. Still alive, Bruce Dern. I went down a little rabbit hole, and damn. Dude is 87 years old at the time of this recording and still making movies. And just this year alone, Dern has already appeared in five films. Very impressive for his age, and I guess it just goes to show that if you do what you love, you'll never need to retire. Don't see a lot of forklift drivers who are 87 years old. Wonder why that is. Now, as far as Harry Tracy goes, like I said, the stories abound. There's claims that he had multiple wives from Missouri all the way to Montana, that he was a Mexican, and of course, that he was involved in scores of shootouts and murders all before the tender age of 20. And from what I was able to find, 
almost none of that is true, including the assertions that he rode with Butch Cassidy. Per historian and Tracy biographer Jim Delunty, quote, Harry Tracy was almost certainly not a member of Butch Cassidy's Wild Bunch, though he has been reported as such so many times that it's nearly accepted as fact, end quote. Delenti goes on to write that this is the single hardest Harry Tracy myth to knock down, primarily due to so many other respected writers having also made the claim. Once again, to quote Mr. Delenti, everything written about Tracy's life, especially his early years, is a bunch of malarkey. His words, not mine, but I got to admit it is kind of fun saying malarkey. Try it out. Malarkey. Don't worry, we will talk more about whether Harry did or did not ride with Butch Cassidy here very shortly. But needless to say, I did have a very hard time separating fact from fiction. So much so that I almost didn't even record this episode. Even a book I leaned on heavily while doing research, The Saga of the Outlaw Harry Tracy by James J. Nystrom, is very sparse when it comes to the details of Tracy's early life. Another title, Harry Tracy, The Last Desperado, by the aforementioned Jim Delenty, I believe would have proved an invaluable source, but unfortunately I was unable to get my hands on a copy. So my apologies in advance, this was one of the harder nuts to crack as far as origin stories go, but hopefully I didn't get too much wrong. And as tends to be the case, things do clear up quite a bit more as we progress. With that disclaimer out of the way, we also don't know when Harry Severance took on the Tracy alias, or why. Some say it was his middle name, and yet others believe that Tracy was his stepfather's last name, even though there's no documentation that his mother was ever married to anyone named Tracy. Who knows, man, maybe Harry just thought it sounded cool, which, I mean, come on, it kind of does, right? Now, despite what you may hear elsewhere, Tracy's first known crime appears to have occurred sometime when he was around 19 or 20. He has still been living in Wisconsin, right next door to his mother. You can find him there in the 1895 census, but he soon joined a threshing crew working over in the Dakotas. Harry asked to borrow $2 from a co-worker, and when the loan was refused, he simply went ahead and took it anyway, and ran off just like his father before him. From there, it looks like Tracy headed all the way to Spokane, Washington, where he took up employment as a lumberjack before being ran out of town after getting caught dilly-dallying a married lady. There's evidence that he spent that winter in Montana and then possibly back to Washington, where he operated as a thief in Seattle under the alias of Tom Bliss. Luckily, by the summer of 1897, things do get a little easier to track. Tracy, who would have still been in his early 20s at the time, for sure made his way down to Utah where he got himself arrested for robbing a store in Provo. He would be tried, found guilty, and sentenced to the Utah State Penitentiary. Not a very long incarceration, though. As you'll soon hear, Harry Tracy was quite the escape artist. He and a friend, David Lant, would bust out of the clink sometime in either late 1897 or early 98 and drift east to an isolated mountain valley known as Browns Park, or sometimes referred to as Browns Hole. Now, this area is located on the Green River in the extreme northeastern portion of Utah, northwestern Colorado, and south-central Wyoming. It's where the Bassett Ranch was located. Shout out to historical hotties Ann and Josie Bassett, along with the infamous Jarvie Trading Post. And the park also just happened to be a favorite hangout of Butch Cassidy's, which is at least part of the reason it's thought that Tracy once rode with the Wild Bunch. And speaking of that, to be fair, there are just so many references to Harry Tracy being a member of the Hole in the Wall gang, or at least being an associate of other members like Flatnose George Curry, that one has to assume there must be at least a little truth to it. But like I mentioned earlier, historian Jim Delenti disagrees as does Butch Cassidy biographer Richard Patterson. 
Speaking of Tracy, Patterson wrote, quote, With one exception, nothing suggesting a connection has ever been uncovered. Carrie Ross Boren, the lone exception, says his grandfather, who was supposed to have known Butch, claimed that Butch personally ordered Tracy to leave Browns Park, end quote. All other references to Tracy being part of the Hole in the Wall gang come from newspaper accounts years after the fact. And nobody, so far as I can tell, has been able to locate any additional hard evidence. Is it possible that Harry knew the Wild Bunch, or even brushed shoulders with Butch Cassidy during his brief stay in the Brown Park region? Sure. But at this point, I think it's safe to say that they never rode together or conspired to commit crimes or anything like that. What we do know is that Tracy and his jailbreak buddy Dave fell in with a couple other hard cases, one of whom, Pat Johnson, was wanted for a recent murder. They had it in mind to flee south together for robber's roost, but Sheriff Charles Neiman out of Route County, Colorado, had other plans. He and his men soon located the bandits, and following a brief gunfight that saw posse member Valentine Hoy shot dead by our very own Harry Tracy, the wanted men finally surrendered, Tracy doing so begrudgingly. Now, this was in early March 1898. Harry and Dave were locked up in the Route County Jail, but just like back in Utah, it would be a very brief stay. A few weeks later, on the morning of March 24th, the outlaw duo managed to slip out of their cells and overpower Sheriff Neiman. Truth be told, they damn near killed the man. Or should I say Harry Tracy damn near killed the man. Supposedly, Dave Lant had to beg Harry numerous times to stop from beating the sheriff plumb to death. And this is a trend we'll see popping up quite a bit on today's episode. As will soon become evident, anybody that stood between Harry Tracy and freedom absolutely did so at their own peril. As far as Sheriff Neiman goes, credit to where credit's due, as he was apparently one tough old cob. Despite being severely beaten and locked in his own jail, Neiman was able to get loose, and although I'm sure he was nursing one hell of a headache, was able to track down and recapture the escapees that very same day. Harry and Lamp were then moved to the more secure jail in Aspen, which was said to be escape-proof. But you know how that goes. On the 22nd of June, almost three months after their last flight to freedom, Tracy and Lant once more made a break for it. I guess Harry had carved a fake wooden gun, wrapped it up in tinfoil, and the bluff worked. Both he and Dave were once more free men. The pair made their way to Breckenridge, robbed $150 from a craps game, the first armed robbery ever committed in Breckenridge, and just a few days later, they did the same in the now ghost town of Kokomo, taking several hundred dollars each from a saloon and an odd fellow's lodge. Now, Dave Lant was a Mormon, and I guess he either came to his senses or developed a guilty conscience as he and Tracy would soon part company. Years later, Lant would be cited for bravery during the Spanish-American War and die a respected businessman. Sadly, we can't say the same for his buddy. Harry fled first to Billings, Montana, but soon returned to the Pacific Northwest where he briefly found refuge in Seattle Skid Row before continuing south to Portland, Oregon. And somewhere along the way, he fell in with his next partner in crime, Dave Merrill. For whatever reason, I guess Tracy was partial to having friends named Dave. Now, this was another gray area of Harry's life, and I had a very difficult time putting all the pieces together. I could not ascertain exactly where or when he met Merrill. Some sources say Montana and still others Seattle. What's certain is that once the pair partnered up, they embarked on what can only be described as an epic crime spree down in Portland brazenly robbing businesses in broad daylight. Hell, on at least one occasion, they even held up a damn police officer as the papers took to calling them the Mackinac Bandits. Now, it wasn't just Dave Merrill who Tracy hit it off with. He also took quite the shine to Dave's sister Rose. 
You may even find accounts stating that the pair were married. However, Harry would later deny this. Just to be clear, Tracy and Rose were most definitely romantically involved. It's just not known for sure if vows were ever swapped or if they was just living in sin. Now, eventually, the 5-0 was tipped off to stolen swag being held at the Merrill home, and Dave was apprehended. Wrongly assuming that Tracy had snitched him out, Merrill let the authorities know that Tracy would be arriving shortly for a visit. The cops stake the place out, and sure enough, here comes Tracy, completely unaware as to what had transpired in his absence. An arrest was attempted, which led to a short gunfight between Harry and a lawman before a nearby butcher got involved and took Tracy down with a blast from his shotgun. The end. Uh, no. Sounds pretty severe, but in reality, the wound was light. A pellet simply glanced off Harry's skull, momentarily stunning him long enough for the cops to make the arrest. And as it turns out, that butcher was one of Tracy's recent robbery victims, who evidently was fed up with people stealing his shit. Now, Harry was found guilty of robbery, but somehow, while awaiting his sentence, he got his hands on a pistol. And he wasted no time in pulling it on a jail guard and demanding his immediate release. The screw fell to his knees and begged Tracy not to kill him, but held firm and refused to open up the cell. Said he'd rather die than do that. And Tracy, realizing the futility of the situation, simply let the guard go. I guess he figured that even if he killed him, he'd still be locked up in the jail, so what's the point? And with an extra charge to boot, which he ended up getting anyway. Other guards arrived and began shooting towards the cell. Tracy returned fire, but once again, what's the point, right? Harry surrendered, and on top of that 13 years he got for robbery, he was given an additional seven for this little failed escape. Harry Tracy was not yet 25 years age and destined to spend the next two decades behind bars. On paper, at least. Turns out the young bandit had other plans. Not quite yet, though. Harry would be sent to the Oregon State Penitentiary, and as luck would have it, his cellmate was none other than Dave Merrill. Apparently, Dave was initially frightened, thinking that maybe Tracy knew it was him who tipped off the police, but in truth, Harry was clueless, and they fell right back into their old friendship. Now, the Oregon State Pen, located outside of Salem, was originally built in 1851 and is still in operation to this day. Not sure what the current conditions are like, and I damn sure don't want to find out, but they weren't all that great back at the turn of the century. Forced labor and corporal punishments were the norm, and prisoners were sometimes even murdered by guards. One gruesome killing in particular is worth mentioning. Now, this did take place a little before Tracy arrived, but I think it'll give you an idea just how cheap life was there at the Oregon State Pen. Consider yourself warned, though, what you're about to hear is not for the faint of heart. All right, I don't want to hear no complaints about your grandkids hearing this. A convict by the name of Delmain was given 10 lashes with a whip as a form of punishment, and as he was cut down from the whipping pole, he struck out defiantly at one of the guards, which resulted in him being tied right back up for an additional lashing. They say Delmain's screams were mere whimpers by blow number 55, yet the guards kept on. 20 lashes more, and Delmain was altogether silent. Still, the man of flogs, the guard with the whip was called, continued raining down blow after blow until he had delivered a horrific 100 lashes. Delmain was then tossed into solitaire with zero medical treatment, and it's there he languished in extreme agony, living only on bread, thin broth, and water for the next 30 days. How he survived that long, I do not know. As it were, he had gone completely out of his mind with pain, and when the guards finally came to fetch him, was found huddled in the corner of his cell, cursing and spitting. A doctor was summoned, and it was determined that the lashes had penetrated all the way to Delmain's spine. To restrain the tortured inmate, his hands were then chained behind his back and his feet fitted with heavy lead-weighted boots. 
And then, of course, they just threw his ass back in solitaire. A few days later, when a guard attempted to give Delmaine a bucket of water, he struck out and knocked it to the floor. Enraged, the guard then proceeded to pick up said bucket and bash it repeatedly over Delmaine's head, till his skull was cracked open like a damp cantaloupe. The unfortunate inmate was then transferred to an insane asylum where he died shortly thereafter from brain and spinal damage. And just in case you're one of those, ah, he had it coming, types, the infraction that led to Delmaine's initial 10 lashes was him replying to a guard in a disrespectful tone. That's it. That's all it took. For this grave sin, they severed the man's damn spine with a whip and didn't even so much as toss him an ibuprofen. Good God almighty. The warden, along with the guard who delivered the lashes, were both dismissed, but I'm not aware of either of them facing criminal charges. Another not-as-lethal punishment, but torturous nonetheless, involved prisoners being hung up over the top of their cell doors overnight, their hands held in place by shackles, and just forced to dangle without their feet being able to touch the floor. Now, I was unable to determine if Harry ever got hung up in such a fashion or if he was ever forced to receive lashes, but both he and Dave Merrill would fall prey to those previously mentioned weighted boots used to subdue Delmaine. Known affectionately as Oregon boots, these were just your regular run-of-the-mill leather shoes fitted with a heavy lead weight that left more than a few inmates crippled, including Dave Merrill. So what did Dave and Tracy do to warrant such a punishment? Well, apparently they were overheard planning an escape, and one of their fellow inmates told on them. Ah, but prison officials underestimated the tenacity of Harry Tracy, and it was going to take a whole hell of a lot more than a pair of heavy boots if they planned on keeping him locked up in that prison much longer. Soon enough, Tracy struck a deal with the soon-to-be-released convict, promising the man a large amount of cash in exchange for help in smuggling in a couple of rifles. This in and of itself is a crazy story. If the information I found is true, the former inmate, Charles Monty, is one of the very few men throughout history found guilty of breaking in to a prison. Dude made good on his promise and, using a rope and grappling hook, shimmied up the walls into the yard and snuck into the foundry shop where Tracy and Merrill worked. It's there where Monty stashed a couple of short-barreled Winchester 3030s along with ammo in a packing crate before sneaking out the same way he came in. FYI, Monty would later receive a life sentence for these efforts. Now, the catch was Harry and Dave did not know when the rifles would arrive, so every day when it was time to go to work, they'd have to shove their way to the front of the line and make sure they was the first at the foundry. This went on for weeks until finally, on the morning of June 9th, 1902, after nearly three years behind bars, Harry Tracy found himself standing there in the Oregon State Pen Foundry, looking down at the beautiful sight of two well-oiled Winchesters. The guards didn't know it yet, but within mere moments, convict number 4088 was about to turn that prison into a damn war zone. Make no mistake about it, there was no elaborate plot other than pure violent aggression. Tracy was quite literally planning on shooting his way out. His first victim was one of the guards assigned to the foundry. The man was in the process of leisurely rolling himself a smoke when Harry approached, yelling out, You had your day, now it's mine followed by a well-placed bullet straight to the back of the head. Tracy continues his attack, pumping round after round at the remaining two foundry guards, who, by the way, were unarmed, as Merrill moves to a window and begins firing at the guards outside on the wall. Inmates are running in every direction, trying to avoid becoming collateral damage, and it's a wonder more of them weren't hit. As it were, just one, a convict named Ingram, took a stray round to the back of the knee. And that sounds like it hurts a lot. 
The leg would later be amputated, and in an effort to drum up good PR, the warden commuted Ingram's sentence by saying that he attempted to disarm Tracy. In truth, he was just scrambling for safety like everybody else. Now, those unarmed guards were able to get away and lock themselves in the prison's chapel, along with several others, so all Tracy and Merrill had to contend with now were the guards out on the wall, one of whom was S.R. Jones. Unfortunately, Mr. Jones made the mistake of exposing himself a little too much, and Harry put a fatal round to the man's chest. Now, at the same time this firefight is occurring, Merrill and Tracy are able to secure a ladder, which they then use to mount one of the walls. And while still under fire, they lift it up over their heads and down to the opposite side. Tracy holds the guards off as Merrill shimmies his way down, and then it's his turn, and lickety-split, just like that, both inmates are now outside the prison walls. It weren't over yet, though. A pair of courageous guards by the name of Tiffany and Ross followed, only to come face-to-face with the escapees who quickly disarmed them and used them as human shields. Worth noting, by this point, the guards in the chapel had got their nerve up and obtained firearms, so here they come, looking to even the score. The captured guard Tiffany spies one of his colleagues on the wall and motions on the sly for him to shoot, which he does, but the shot misses. And Tracy rewards Tiffany by ventilating his skull with a round from that Winchester. More gunfire erupts from the wall, so the remaining hostage, Ross, falls to the ground and plays possum as Merrill and Tracy make their final break shooting backwards as they rushed towards the tree line. Harry Tracy was once again on the run, but he had just left three guards in his wake, and the manhunt that followed would be unlike anything ever seen in the Pacific Northwest. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that Dave Merrill had been next to useless during this escape, at least as far as Tracy was concerned. It was he, Harry, who had done most of the shooting, and it was also him who killed the three guards. And even now, as they made their way through the forest outside of the prison, Tracy was slowed down by Dave's crippled feet. These so-called inadequacies would become a point of friction between the two men that would only intensify in the weeks to come. For now, though, their only concern was not getting recaptured. And you better believe Harry Tracy had more than a few tricks up his prison striped sleeve. Despite the warden calling for immediate assistance and offering up a $1,000 bounty on the fugitives, they were able to make their way to Salem undetected. It was there they received food from a former inmate before moving on and stealing a team of horses. That night, they robbed an innocent passerby of his clothing, divvying up the spoils between the two of them. By the next morning, not only was the law out in force, but so was the National Guard. Hell, they even brought in a team of crack bloodhounds all the way from Washington. Locals got in on the action as well. Pretty much anyone who was able to handle a gun was out beating the bush in search of these escapees. Still, Harry and Dave pressed on. And by day two, they had made it some 15-odd miles to the north, where they skirted the town of Gervais on foot. Yeah, on foot. I know a minute ago I said they stole a team of horses, which was true. But remember, Harry Tracy was nothing if not clever, and this would be a tactic he'd employ more than once. They'd steal a horse or a buggy or what have you, ride a few miles, and then disembark and continue on foot. Invariably, the pursuers would continue following the horse tracks as he and Dave went on their merry way in the opposite direction. Case in point, that very night, near Gervais, they came upon a couple of posse members in a buggy. Tracy and Dave got the slip on them, relieved the men of said buggy along with their weapons and ammunition, but a few miles later, they jumped ship while the buggy was still moving. Believe it or not, this ruse worked time and time again. As far as the bloodhounds go, that's a mite trickier, but Tracy had his ways. 
Not only would he wade through creeks and swamps as much as possible, throwing off the scent, but he was also just constantly doubling back on his own trail, further confusing matters. Also, for what it's worth, at least one source claimed that it was unseasonably dry and dusty, and that all that dust somehow hampered the hounds. Whether or not that's true, I can't say. All I know is that every time there was a new sighting, the dogs were rushed in, but on damn near every occasion, they'd lose the scent after just a few miles. Now that night, Harry and Dave stayed put, and despite their best efforts, were literally surrounded by armed posse men. Fortunately, most of these men were amateurs, and more than a little drunk, so they were able to break through a line of pickets the next morning, drawing some ineffectual fire in the process, but still able to double back a little while later and rob a few of the struggling and hungover posse men of their guns. Meanwhile, the citizens of Gervais just watched in astonished amusement as the posses just kept running this way and that in a failed and frantic effort to get in front of the wanted men. Later that evening, Tracy and Merrill were spotted once more in a field, and the law quickly assembled. Be that as it may, Marion County Sheriff Frank Durbin was understandably hesitant to order his men into the thick underbrush, fearing ambush. Nonetheless, by nightfall, there were nearly 250 men spread out over a few miles in a large semicircle, along with militia manning all roads leading in and out. Hell so confident were the authorities that the damn governor of Oregon even showed up in a wagon to witness the dramatic climax. Or so he thought. Despite every man of the posse being on high alert throughout the night, and definitely not taking swigs from their whiskey flasks, wink wink, Tracy and Merrill just slipped quietly through their grasp and lit out once again. And from there, the manhunt just turned into a total shit show. I think there was eventually somewhere around 500 men scouring the Oregon countryside. Civilians carrying everything from Grandpa's old squirrel gun to Civil War black powder relics. And yeah, per rumors, most of them were slap drunk. Finally, Sheriff Durbin disbanded everybody and sent them home. He felt like the fugitives were headed for Portland anyway, and there was no sense in trasping about the wilderness and risking the posse members shooting at each other. Durbin thought that the best bet was just to wait for Harry and Dave to resurface, at which point he and his men would pounce. And yeah, the sheriff's hunch was mostly correct. Tracy and Merrill stole another team of horses, along with a wagon, and passed through the towns of Oregon City, Milwaukee, and Selwood without incident. Upon reaching the Columbia River, they forced a couple of men at gunpoint to sell them across to Washington State, promising to send $50 for the trouble. Once on dry land, the pair took a meal at a farmhouse before again setting out on foot. They'd lay low in the forest that night and the next morning stop at an old German immigrant's house for breakfast, taking a fresh set of clothing while doing so and leaving the old man tied to the bed. He got loose, though, and the authorities were alerted, and once more there was a huge mobilization, mostly centered around the Vancouver, Washington area. You had lawmen from both Oregon and Washington, along with more National Guard and a shit ton of armed civilians. And the results were predictable. Hell, two different groups of vigilantes ended up getting so drunk they shot at each other in the dark. Ah, but the search continued with Tracy and Dave still stopping at various farms and homesteads along the way for sustenance. And they really weren't hiding who they were. There were a few times where they'd claimed to be deputies or part of the search party, but for the most part, Harry made no bones about his true identity, and oftentimes introduced himself simply as the convict Tracy. From the Columbia, they pushed up to the town of La Center, about 20 miles north of Vancouver, and from there, Cowlitz County, not far from Silver Lake just steadily headed north, and the authorities really couldn't do nothing but react. 
They'd wait until some farmer came forward saying that he spotted the escapees, then rush like hell with the bloodhounds. Dogs would pick up the scent for a couple of miles and then nothing. Rinse and repeat. Finally, after about a month on the lam, Tracy shows up in Olympia alone. Stopped at a farm outside of town, tied the homeowner up, and cooked himself a meal, claiming that Dave Merrill was about a mile away guarding the road. Once done with his meal, Harry would steal a couple of horses and make his way to the southern shore of Puget Sound. It's there, early the next morning, where he marched into the offices of the Capital City Oyster Company, introduced himself as the convict Harry Tracy, and demanded breakfast. And as he ate, he confessed to a fresh murder. When one of the employees inquired as to Dave Merrill's whereabouts, Tracy nonchalantly replied, quote, Oh, I killed the son of a bitch three days ago, shot him three times, and threw his dead body under a clump of trees. End quote. After washing his bacon down with some fresh coffee, Harry ordered a few of the men onto an oyster boat and forced them to ferry him up the Puget Sound towards Seattle. During the trip, Tracy expounded upon his troubles with Dave saying that they had been quarreling. A few days prior, they had come upon a newspaper article giving Merrill more credit than Tracy felt like he was due. Harry said that Dave didn't have the nerve of a rabbit and was oftentimes too scared to even approach farms for food. Quote, That isn't my style. No man can take me alone, and if I had a proper traveling companion, a man of nerve, I couldn't be taken by a regiment of deputies. If I am shot, it will be from behind. And with another man to guard the opposite direction, a man of some nerve who knew how to handle a gun, we could go wherever we wanted and not be compelled to keep under cover a portion of the time as I am when traveling alone. End quote. Tracy went on to say that Merrill was no good, that he was nothing but an impediment, and that he couldn't even be relied upon to keep guard throughout the night. Said he got mad when the paper gave Merrill equal credit and began taunting him, calling him a coward, and finally... They decided to fight a duel right then and there. Remember, this is according to Tracy, but he said they stood together, backs touching, and agreed to walk 10 steps forward before simultaneously turning and firing. A real old school gentleman's duel. However, Harry didn't trust Merrill to not turn prematurely, so after taking just eight steps, he himself whirled around and put three bullets into Dave's back. In Tracy's mind, this was not a shameful action. He was fully convinced that Dave was going to cheat, so why give the man an opportunity? And just to kind of show how volatile Harry was, the captain of the oyster boat had to talk him out of shooting at other people on the sound twice during the boat trip. As they passed a federal prison on McNeil Island, Tracy raised his rifle and said he was going to pick one of the guards off the wall. The captain pointed out that this would bring unwanted attention, and Tracy unenthusiastically agreed instead satisfying himself by taking pot shots at a seal swimming near the shore. A little while later, while passing Point Defiance, a tugboat began barreling straight towards him. Once again, Harry shouldered his Winchester as the captain nervously explained that it was all in good-natured fun, just a joke, and that the boat would swerve out of the way as they got closer. Sure enough, it did, and the tugboat captain could be seen smiling and waving as they passed by. That evening, they docked on the eastern shore of the Sound, somewhere just in the north of Seattle, and Tracy tied the crew up. All except for one of them, that is, Frank Scott, who he instead held as a hostage. After promising to send the captain some money for his troubles, Tracy and Scott set off on foot towards the suburbs of Ballard. As they traveled, Harry was nice enough to give Frank the exact location of Merrill's body, sort of as a favor, saying that maybe he could collect the reward money. 
And after taking a breather on the railroad tracks, the two men bid each other adieu with Tracy saying that he was headed into Seattle in order to hold up Clancy's saloon and hopefully get his hands on a brand new six-shooter. Funny enough, Frank Scott would immediately quit his job with the Oyster Company and set out to find Merrill's body. No more fishing for Scotty, he told co-workers. After next week, I'll be living in luxury at the expense of the Oregon taxpayers. No idea whatever became of Mr. Scott, but he would not be the one to discover Merrill's remains. That distinction would fall to someone else entirely, but you're going to have to wait till later to learn who. Daddy's got to build a little suspense every now and then. Now, at this point, the investigation was taken over by King County Sheriff Edward Cudahy, a lifelong bachelor with no children. Sheriff Cudahy was 100% wholly devoted to the job. He also wasn't cursed with songs like Baby Shark or Wheels on the Bus being on constant repeat in his head, like I am. Must be nice. Now, this was not Cudahy's first rodeo. With over 20 years' experience wearing a badge, the sheriff had helped to arrest the notorious Seattle killer Thomas Blank a few years prior. And when Blank escaped from jail, Cudahy was involved in the successful manhunt that followed. And what's more, if the stories are true, one of his top deputies, Jack Williams, had investigated Tracy some six years prior when he was living in Seattle under that Tom Bliss alias. Once they learned that their prey had been spotted near the town of Bothell, Sheriff Cudahy immediately dispatched Deputy Williams and a small posse, with plans of joining them shortly to direct the search personally. In the meantime, Williams and his men began combing the railroad tracks east of Bothell towards Woodenville. When that proved fruitless, they turned their attention to the west commandeering a large canoe and paddling their way along the shores of Lake Washington. And it's there, on a rainy July 3rd, 1902, that they came upon a secluded cabin that appeared suspect. Just the type of place that might provide shelter to a desperado like Harry Tracy. Now, in addition to Williams, you had a Deputy Nelson, another sheriff's deputy of Snohomish County, Raymond, a volunteer named Brewer, and a couple of reporters. Believe it or not, that was actually pretty common during the Tracy manhunt with reporters accompanying posses out in the field. And oftentimes, they were just as well-armed as the lawmen. Now, the plan was to split up, with Williams, Brewer, and Nelson approaching the cabin from one side as Deputy Raymond and the reporters brought up the flank. The men inched forward slowly, not just out of caution, but also due to the thick foliage surrounding the cabin. As the rain increased, their visibility was further limited, but they remained on high alert. Or so they thought. Problem was, they was focusing a little bit too much on that cabin. Imagine their surprise when Harry Tracy popped up, not from within, but rather from behind a large alder stump some 30 yards away and sent a bullet creasing the cheek of one of the newspapermen, Carl Anderson. As Anderson fell backwards, Deputy Raymond crouched defensively in front of the wounded man, and tragically, his heroics were rewarded by two 30-30 rounds to the chest. The remaining posse men rallied and continued their assault, but Tracy's aim was surgical, and Deputy Williams was the next to fall. Overwhelmed, the others rushed to Williams' aid and took refuge in the cabin as Harry made his getaway. Now, as dramatic as that gunfight was, the day wasn't over yet. Matter of fact, Tracy would kill twice more before the sun was fully over the horizon. But you're going to have to wait till next week to find out more. Or sign up for Into History. The second and final installment of the Harry Tracy saga is available right now as we speak over at IntoHistory.com forward slash Wild West Extra. Link down in the description. Now, basic membership will give you access to early release episodes like this, but the standard upgrade or higher will allow you to listen to the bonus content. 
Remember, I'm still recording and releasing installments of William T. Hamilton's My 60 Years on the Plains. I'm almost done, actually, with the book. And those are now exclusive to Into History, with a lot more bonus content to come. That's IntoHistory.com forward slash Wild West Extra. All right. Now, uh, the last episode I did on Bass Reeves, I spoke of how Bass arrested his own son, and I asked for members of law enforcement to chime in and let us know what they think. I got a few replies. They were generally all about the same, and I thought I'd read one of them here today. Interestingly enough, this also applies to something we'll be discussing next week in regard to Harry Tracy. The following comes from Mike over at Sapa Creek Gunsmithing. Howdy Josh, longtime listener and first time writing. As a former lawman of almost 19 years, I can fully support your assessment on the motivations of Bass wanting to be the man who arrested his son. Given the time, Ben was a black man who murdered a lady, though it be his wife. Tensions are very high in the execution of warrants by the officers involved. I could tell some stories of my own. I have no doubt that Bass was very concerned that his boy get his day in court and not strung up by a vigilante group or shot by a trigger-happy deputy looking to make a reputation as the lawman who gunned down the infamous Bass Reeves' son. We also have to put ourselves in the mind of Bass. For him to not at least ask to execute the warrant could cost him some street cred in the eyes of those he was tasked to bring to justice. It was Bass's cred that kept him alive and allowed him to bring in so many alive to stand trial while his counterparts were bringing in corpses. My years wearing a badge taught me that even the bad guys have a code of ethics, skewed as they may be. If you wore the badge, you best obey the damn laws that you yourself are locking up others for breaking. Also, treating them as humans who deserve fair treatment regardless of the nature of their crimes, color, creed, religion, etc. Lastly, we can't forget that as the story goes, it was Bass who told his son how he'd handle an unfaithful wife and her bad partner. I'm sure he deeply regretted that advice after the shit hit the fan. Thank you, Josh. Keep up the good work. Very much enjoy your podcast. I have spent many an hour working in my shop listening to your podcast. I am retired from the badge these days. Now I own and operate a gunsmith shop in South Central Nebraska. Thank you, Mike, both for your kind words and insightful reply. And yeah, man, that code that Mike speaks about would also prove to be a prevalent theme with Harry Tracy as well. Like I said, more on that next week. And hey, if you're up there in Nebraska, why not see Mike over at Sapa Gunsmithing for all your gunsmithing needs? All right, don't go shooting your camp cook just because you got a bullet stuck in your gun. Bring it to Mike instead. Now, speaking of Bass Reeves, I still have not seen the new miniseries, but I do appreciate everybody sending me in their reviews. Thank you so much for listening. If you're looking for more true tales from the Wild and Woolly West, head on over to wildwestextra.com. And while you're there, hit that contact button. Send me your grandma's best recipes or suggestions for new topics, or just tell me that you hate the sound of my voice. All right, that's it for this week. Till next time, try not to go to prison. And if you do, just do your time. If Harry Tracy hadn't have tried to escape, he would have been a free man again at a relatively young enough age to start his own family, if he wanted to. And he could have lived a long, happy life with echoes of baby shark ringing through his head. Instead, he, well, you'll see. Adios!
malarkey.